This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast with me, your host, Louise Rumble. And today I am joined by the wonderful Massimo Fontana, sex therapist, sexologist, psychotherapist, NLP practitioner, and so much more. If you haven't already listened to Massimo and I on the Open House Podcast, he joined us a couple of weeks ago, so please do be sure to head back into the back catalogue and listen to our first episode that we discussed all things pussy shaming, penis shaming, shame more generally, and really we just got into it. And on that note, today we are talking about performance in the bedroom, the big performance, the screaming performance. And now I say screaming performance because I want to open today's episode with a little story, which is that when I was out in Mexico, I was coming home from dinner one night. It was quite late. It was like 11 or 12. And where I was living, there were all of these penthouses like round the pool. So they were all open air on the top. I walked into the building, into the central area of the building, and I genuinely thought someone was being murdered in the building because all I could hear was screaming. Literally, I'm not going to replicate it because no one wants to hear that, but you can imagine, okay? I looked at my boyfriend and I was like, oh my God. And then we kept listening and we realized someone is not being murdered or hurt. Someone is having sex. And this just got me thinking when we were planning this episode that I don't think, no matter how incredible a sexual experience has been for me, that I have ever screamed so loudly that someone might think 
that I'm dying. So I think that's the kind of performance we're talking about today. But again, like everything, it's on a spectrum. Just because you're not screaming in the bedroom doesn't mean you're not performing. There are so many different elements to this from faking orgasms to doing things that you don't want to do. So performance, what are your thoughts? As a starting point, there's no real stats on how many people on average are performing in the bedroom. But if I was going to look at my clinic and the clinical experience that I have working with both individuals and couples, I'd say that at least 80% of people are trying to perform and get it right. Rather than taking the necessary steps to actually learn how to become more present and embodied lovers. I would say that most people are performing today, both on an unconscious level and conscious level. I think what seems worse for me is that if it's on an, a, a conscious level, this simply highlights that there's a real fear associated to getting sex wrong rather than using every experience as that beautiful lesson towards self-mastery and learning how to experience full pleasure. I think it's so interesting what you say about getting sex wrong. And that's something that since being on this journey of sobriety that a lot of people say to me, oh my goodness, how do you have sex sober? You know, how do you do that? And I think for me, that's only highlighted this fear around truly being seen in those like deeply vulnerable moments. And I know that we're going to get into that later on today. And I think that 80% stat is crazy, but I'm also not surprised. And I think that this goes deep. And I think it goes back a very long way. And I think it goes into pornography. I think it goes into mainstream culture today. But I want to take it back further than that, because I have this one distinct memory when I was younger, which I've spoken about this on the podcast before, was that my best friend at school was the pretty one. All of the boys were into her. And I felt like not the ugly friend, but definitely like the second in command. But these guys would often say, oh, she's so pretty, but she has no sex appeal. And I think that in that moment, as like a 14-year-old girl, I kind of realized that this is an area that I can win. I might not be the prettiest, but I can be the sexiest. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that was like a conscious thing. I've never thought like, oh, I'm going to be so sexy and everything I do is going to be so sexy. But I think from a young age, I learned that there is an opportunity to win here by being a sexual being. And I think that we're seeing this so much today with the younger generation is that everything is so skewed and you hear of these poor teenagers today like having anal sex and getting fucked like porn stars because that's all they've seen and a total lack of like reality and sex education and so I guess I don't know where you want to go here whether you want to go into at what age we form these sexual beliefs about ourselves or whether you want to jump into pornography the starting point with the younger generation, I think, is a great point to enter into this because the baseline of what I usually work with is wage ranges from 12 years old upwards. And what I see is, and, and what I've experienced as well, there is a real skewed view of what people should be doing, especially at that age. So there's a real sexual chargedness. And I see this in both young boys and girls. It's the videoing, it's the sending nudes. Something that's very common is recording your partner while having sex with them and putting it on Snapchat so it's shared in the community. So there's a lot of undisclosed sexual play that is very, very, very harmful for the younger generation. And if you're just looking at sex education as an example, 
off the top of my head, I wouldn't even be able to tell you which is the best sexual education system to try and introduce to kids. And the conversation that I had this last weekend, which was really interesting around the subject, I was sitting around a table with eight to 10 people and all of them have kids. And I was instructing them and telling them, you need to find books that are age sensitive, that answer the questions. And you could see the aversion. It's almost like they didn't want to step into that space and they were rather willing to leave it to how life would be. If something's going to happen, it'll happen and we'll deal with it when it happens rather than actually assisting a new generation to make sense of what this all means. Yeah, it's deeply damaging and I think it's deeply concerning and I really hope that we can be part of the revolution that changes what is happening for the generations below us because I feel very grateful that my first sexual experiences were really very wholesome. I lost my virginity to my first ever boyfriend and we were in such a healthy, loving relationship. I was never pressurized into doing anything. In fact, throughout that whole relationship, it was just a very, very positive experience. But then as I went to university and as my life really went tits up and I started to experience a lot of trauma, I made a lot of bad decisions and was heartbroken and had a lot of deep shame and regrets, I then started to move into this spiral. I'd lost that boyfriend, I'd lost my friends, and I kind of moved into this space of, I need others to validate me. And how can I do that? Well, I can do that by being sexy, being desired. But when I break it down, and a lot of this I've done in therapy, I look back at just a girl that just wanted to be loved and was heartbroken and in so much pain. And I hadn't been taught the tools to communicate that. I didn't have the support system. So at 18 years old, what that looked like was me performing for men to be chosen without realizing how horrendously empty that made me feel afterwards. So I want to bring this back to performance. How does it tie back to self-esteem or lack of self-esteem or more just like a general disconnection from ourselves and our power? Well, let me explain this way. So people see on screen, both in Hollywood and through porn, that sex is meant to be this interstellar experience that blows our minds. And in the same way that we can see meditation providing us a form of enlightenment, we fake it hoping that we're going to make it, if that makes sense. So this is a chosen path instead of actually taking the time to be curious about who you are and what you bring to the bedroom. And if you're looking at what's happening nowadays, there's a recent study on technology usage, as an example, where they found the younger generation using up to eight hours of telephone usage of whatever tech it is. So if you're thinking about that being the amount of hours that is being wasted on a daily basis, seven days a week, you're not creating space to actually explore that sexual self. So you could have all the tools in the world, but they haven't created the space to actually start exploring. And this is also what I start seeing with a lot of the couples that I work with, that they don't communicate anymore. They hide behind their technology. We avoid discomfort and tension. We've become fundamentally the epitome of avoidance. So if we aren't performing. What are we actually doing in the bedroom? We avoid creating connection, let alone maintaining connection sexually and emotionally. And so what this does is that it's a bit of a catch-22 because when we're assuming what the person wants in the bedroom with us, we never really get to the truth of it, number one. 
But then we also create this double edge where it's we're fearful to hear the response and feedback on our performance. So we've almost become so hypersensitive to feedback that we just avoid it at all costs. I think the point around silence that you made is deeply profound because I think that when I was younger, everything was silent. You know, you would never have these discussions around how does that feel? Does that feel good for you? I remember my first ever partner about 20 years old saying to me, does that feel good? Does, does it feel good this way? And I remember being like, oh my goodness, no one has ever asked me that question before. And I remember feeling so awkward to vocalize back, that feels good, or could you do it more in this way? And I think that you're right, that silence is a key driver of this performance. And I think tying the silence and the performance together brings us to faking orgasms. And I know that this is something that both male and females deal with. And I think that that silence is because you're not communicating your truth. You're not communicating, oh, it feels really good, but can you do that instead? Or do this and keep doing that. And like, yeah, keep it like that. Or on the flip side, which is something that has taken me 30 years of my life to learn, is to say, it feels really good, but I just don't think I'm going to come today. You know, that was something that I could never, ever fathom saying before. And so I want to go into that. What's the drivers behind the performance of orgasms? Is it because of the fragility of our partner's egos? Is it because we feel like a failure if they, if we don't come, if they don't come? What are your thoughts on faking orgasms? I'm smiling because I, I love that you've managed to reach that point because I think it's such a valuable lesson that I think we all need to learn. And I think what happens is that cognitively speaking, we attach our self-worth to orgasm. And it's not only our own orgasm, but it's also provoking the orgasm in the other person. So this is where I think men and women both do this. It's more male-bodied and female-bodied people also do the same thing, where if my partner isn't having an orgasm, I've convinced myself in my narrative in a way that says, I'm now not good enough because this person hasn't reached that state that I'm wanting them to achieve. Even though, let's say, for instance, the time that we've shared together has been the epitome of pleasure and I've loved every second of being with this person, be it the foreplay, the end play, all these different things. But there's so much value attached to that one thing. Whereas if we're really looking at what happens in the cycle, if we're very attuned to, let's say, for instance, our lunar cycle, as an example, your energetic state is going to be fluctuating. It's going to be going up and down all the time. Now, no one ever teaches us about this either. So we have to have the self-exploration where it's becoming quite aware of where am I on my erotic scale? And once you can be quite attuned to that, then that translates really well in the bedroom. Because what you can then do is that if you feel that you're not aligned 100% or you're not at the height of your erotic energetic state, right? You can say to your partner, look, I'm not feeling as erotically aroused as I usually am, but I would love to experience this with you and go through the pleasure of being with you, being in that body with you and just encountering that intimacy. And that all of a sudden takes all the pressure off from needing to orgasm. But in order to get to that point, this is where communication is essential. And what I find is that a lot of people still attach their sexuality to shame and guilt, that's really a starting point that I think many people need to step into. It's what is your shame communicating? What is your guilt communicating? 
And usually it's withdrawal because it's attached to anxiety. So in those moments, you want to withdraw and take yourself out of that. And that puts you into a very heady space rather than, than being completely in your body. Oh my goodness. I have so much to say here. Now, I couldn't agree more that I think when I was younger, talking about the performance side of things, there was this belief that if I did not orgasm or if I did not make them orgasm, I was a failure. Not only am I a failure, but I'm actually not attractive or I'm not as sexy as I thought they found me or, oh my goodness, they're not attracted to me. And there have been times when a partner would lose their erection and I would end up like crying in the shower afterwards. And you know, deep down, it's not their fault. So you don't want to bring it up and say, well, you lost your erection. Like, are you still attracted to me? Because you know already it's going to, they're going to feel bad and it's going to make them feel worse. But then you internalize it. And then the whole dynamic for the rest of the day is off. And I remember that I had this with my most recent partner and it opened up the most incredible discussion for him to say, not every time we have sex, are we both going to orgasm? And that is the beauty of it. Who says that having sex only happens when you have an orgasm? And he was the one that took off those blinkers for me that, wow, we can be erotic, we can be intimate. It can feel so good for a minute, 20 minutes, an hour. And if you do not orgasm, that does not matter. And I think for me, that was like a deeply healing part of my journey to be with someone without the fragile ego and without the expectations. And that for me was so revolutionary because for the first time ever, I remember saying to him, I just don't think I'm going to orgasm today. And that was something I had never said in my whole entire life. I would have either faked it when I was younger, or I would have just kept going and going and going. Like, you know, if I just do this, or if I do it myself, then I can push myself to orgasm. Like I could always get there, but it would have to be like very manipulated and maneuvered. And actually just being able to be like, it's not going to happen today. And him being like, okay, I love you. You know, let's pick it up later was so revolutionary. So I love you sharing that. There is so much that I want to normalize in, in, in what you've just expre- expressed there. And the first thing is, it is normal for men to lose their erection. That is an inevitability. Blood flows to the tip of the penis, it goes up. We have a pump system. It's not something that is so extraordinary and intricate like a yoni. This is really where I believe a yoni is far more intricate in that sense. And it's not diminishing the male anatomy either. But one of the most healing experiences that I encountered with one of my exes was when that moment actually happened and I lost my erection, her immediate response was, don't worry, I know he's going to come back. And it was just that one moment of going, wow, okay, there is no pressure whatsoever. And we got back into the flow of things and that's how it worked. But something that I think everybody should really try and look at or at least pull up is the study that was done by Masters and Johnson in 1970, where they looked at the orgasmic cycle of men and women. And they found that it takes up to 35 to 40 minutes for a woman to reach the peak of her orgasm. And it takes up to seven minutes, more or less, for a man to reach his. So anatomically speaking, we're not really aligned. And this is really where I think this idea of foreplay nowadays has actually fallen to the wayside. Because What is the intention of foreplay? The intention of foreplay is to bring both bodies to a state that they can receive each other perfectly well. And and this is also something that I think people are constantly trying to do and, and emulate by watching porn. It's like, 
I need to come at the same time that you're going to come. Biologically speaking, we're not aligned like that. We can build up to that and using different exercises and things like that. Yes, but fundamentally, anatomically speaking, we're not really aligned. Yeah, that's so important. Thank you for sharing that. We've spoken about the misguided belief that sex has to have an orgasm at the end of it. And I think we've spoken about the misguided belief that sex has to be silent. So do you think it's fair to say that pornography is the foundation of what has taught us to perform? Because one thing that really stuck out for me when I was watching Euphoria was Maddie. Okay, very sexy character. She sat on her bed and it says, Maddie learned everything that Nate wanted from watching porn. She would watch it for hours. And it was that that made me realize, okay, I have never, ever done that. But people are literally learning from these porn stars how to move their body, what noises to make, what words to say. And you said something to me once that was so incredible, which was that we don't leave the womb as porn stars. So at what point do we develop this feeling that we need to be one in the bedroom? I think the simple answer is yes, because it's been probably the most easily accessible visual aid into the world of nudeness and nakedness and sexuality. So what I think is quite wrong with porn is the perception of porn. It's our perception of porn that's the problem. And if you're using it as a tool and actually seeing, okay, this is how a person moves intimately. This is what penetration looks like. These are all the different styles and let's call it sexual positions that can come from that. It enhances one's imagination. But where it goes wrong is when we actually do have the sexual experience with a partner. It's that harsh reality check that we start looking back at pornography and going, what we're seeing on screen is what we're wanting in the bedroom. But it's so removed from that because I really believe sex is clunky. It, it takes a while for us to equilibrate, right? In pornography, it's very scripted, whereas in the bedroom, it's not scripted. And there's this disillusionment that comes over us where it's, I want that, but what I'm experiencing is something completely different. And that's when, once again, we get into a very cognitive space where we start questioning ourselves and really criticizing ourselves for not seeing what we're seeing on screen playing out in the bedroom. Yeah. And from my personal experience, now, I don't know if anyone else listening feels like this, but whenever I've been performing for someone else when I'm younger, it has never in any way heightened my pleasure. If anything, I would say it's actually gone the other way, which is that, like you said, you go into your head because you're playing a part, you're thinking about it, you're heading into that cerebral part of the body. And I know that we're going to do a whole episode on this called Sex Happens in Our Bodies, So Why Are We in Our Head? Because what I have learned as I've got older and as every year that has passed, my sex life has got better and better. And that's because I've become more deeply connected to myself and more communicative, et cetera, et cetera. But what I can see when I look back is that when I've been playing a part or when I've been performing or when I'm going to be the hypersexual, super dirty, super filthy, whatever it is that I think that person wants. That's always at the expense of my own pleasure. So I want to ask you, do you think that performance actually to some extent is really just a disconnection from our truth? Because I would say that for me, performance has ultimately been a disconnection from my true self and my truth. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sexual self. Once again, I think the simple answer is yes. And I think most people are experiencing exactly that. When we are very truthful in our sexual space, our desires are the first thing that are often judged. So if we're now stepping into a space where we're in service to somebody else, that overrides our sensation of pleasure because we're getting pleasure from seeing the other person pleasured, but we're actually dismissing ourselves and cutting ourselves off from our own sexual experience. And this is where I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves. So we minimize and diminish our own pleasure cycle. And that's where I think in terms of balancing it out, this is really a discussion that couples and individually should be having. It's, can you receive pleasure? What does it feel like to receive pleasure? That's so important to discuss the balance between receivership and service, because I think when we put it like that, and I look back and I look back at these men that I was performing for, it was all about giving to them so they would feel a certain way about me. It was like a validation piece. Now I could never imagine doing something that I didn't want to do because the partner that I'm with would never want me to do something that I didn't want to do. I want to ask you, if someone listening to this finds that they are performing in the bedroom, they are faking their orgasms, is it possible and do you see in your clinical practice duos and partners that can rework the dynamic into a more balanced one? Or do you think that isn't really possible and they should be looking for a new relationship that is of a healthier dynamic? It's an amazing question. The answer is, is yes. It can change. Sex can get better. We can learn different skills and techniques. We can de-armor ourselves. We can reduce tension in the body. It's just a question of how much time are you giving to that process of learning how to become more of a sexually embodied person. And what I would normally do is that I would scrape it back to the bare basics where you do start with communication again. You do start with desires. You start with boundaries. You start with what does it mean to actually have these desires fulfilled by your partner or to have them expressed with your partner? And one other aspect of this that's super, super important is the idea of aftercare. How can I constantly maintain a degree of safety in this relationship with my partner and both partners being aware of not being violent towards each other in their language, in their uh, emotions, in the experience of being in that. And once you disarm all of that, it really creates a beautiful platform to actually design how you want your sexual experience to be. And this is where I think we have the luxury of being adults, that we can quite literally design our sexual experience and sexual encounter in whichever way that we want. As, as far as the imagination goes within the realm of consent, we can do it. So that's something that's really, really exciting. And to inject that excitability into a couple and realize that there is always potential to be expansive in our sexuality, it's a non-ending road. And that's what I love about this world. What I've taken from that is you can make changes in your partnership, but it starts with communication. And I think that's so important. But what I've also found is that communication starts with yourself. You know, maybe after this episode, sitting down and thinking, okay, do I fake my orgasms? Do I make noises? 
when I don't really need to make noises? Do I make lots of noises when I could just naturally want to make less noises? Do I do things that I don't want to do? Do I send news when I don't want to? Do I make sex tapes when I don't want to? That's the first question for me is working out what do you do in your sexual relationship or relationships, plural? And then I think the next question for me is asking, why do I do that? Is it that you're scared of your partner's ego? Is it that you're scared that they will get upset and offended if you don't? Is it that you need to feel validated when they say, oh, you're so sexy, baby? What is it that you are getting out of these conditioned program behaviors? Because the third stage for me is starting to peel back those layers, which actually ties into the concept of safety, that I love that you mentioned safety because Emma Chamberlain, who's a very, very famous YouTuber, said once in a Call Her Daddy interview that she hates going on top because it feels like she's on show. Now, I have to say, I actually related with that. Like when I get on top of my boyfriend, there's something that you feel so vulnerable, so exposed. It's like every part of your body can be seen. You don't know what they're seeing from below you. I'm like, how many chins can you see from down there? You know, it is a very vulnerable and exposing place. So I want to talk about that concept of safety and the true vulnerability that we have to be able to be okay with to really push through that piece of discomfort into true receivership. I can lie here. I can be fully embodied. I can experience pleasure without worrying about the sounds I make, without worrying about the facial expressions I make, without worrying about the shape of my body, for example. So what are your thoughts on that safety piece? And maybe for people that don't like their body or don't want to have sex in the light, they want the lights off, they want to do it under the duvet. Where would you start with those people? This is so juicy. For me, the visual aspect is that the heart space of hetero-based porn, the heart space of the man is always very removed from the heart space of the woman. So there's this real detachment that happens because we want the visual aid. So when you're on top, as an example, that sense of now I'm exposed or being seen is because you've moved further and further away from his heart space. To correct that, it's a very, very simple technique. Bring his heart space closer to your heart space and you will see that intimacy not only increase, but you won't have that insecurity of now I'm being observed, I'm being judged, I'm I'm being perceived in a particular way. So this is something that I think we all need to try and bring into the lovemaking experience, that the closer your heart space gets to your partner, the more intimate it becomes for both. That's one aspect. The other aspect is this idea of being seen by the other person. And when we first encounter, let's say, for instance, the first sexual experience we have with a new partner. That's often a lot of anxiety that comes up for the person is when I take my clothes off, how is it going to be? Am I going to allow this person to see me completely in my nude state? What are all the things that are going to come up? Is he or she going to like what they see? And this is really where I think we need to be able to showcast ourselves as well and be proud in stepping into that naked form that we are. And a great exercise to practice with your partner or even alone in mirror work is to literally stand in front of the mirror and observe yourself and take yourself in. Observe every single nook and cranny that make you who you are and recognize that you are the most beautiful person in your world. 
it's such a conflicting statement for a lot of people to hear that because if I say you are the most beautiful person in your world, it is really a truth. I don't care how big or small or short or tall or whatever it is you are, but you fundamentally are the most beautiful person in your world. And until you start practicing that and embodying that, you're always going to be looking at the other person to fill some kind of deficit in you. And I quite like the idea of making love in the dark because it's almost a sensory deprivation kind of experience where you can cut out all the other senses. And if you're thinking about, I think it's about 80% of our visual stimulus really informs how we act in the world and how we relate in the world. Cut that out completely, you're left with a kinesthetic and you're left with the auditory, right? Which are two beautiful underdeveloped responses that we have. Now you have this extraordinary person that's in front of you, you have a perceived image of what they really are, but now you're attuning your senses to actually feel and hear what they really are about. So it's a great exercise and it's not something that we should be ashamed of in wanting to step into a darkened space. But I think it's a question of, am I running away from something or am I using it to actually enhance my sexual experience? I am so happy that you have just mentioned that because I had an incredible experience when I was away, which I'd never really done any blindfold work. It just like wasn't really something that had come up. It wasn't that I avoided it. It just never really happened. And I just had this one incredible experience where I think it was even a sleep mask. Like it wasn't sexy. I think I just like woken up and I still have my sleep mask on. And I remember me and my partner had the most incredible intimate experience because the visual had been taken out of it. So there was no, there was nothing for me to perform. I was half asleep. I'd just woken up. I couldn't see anything. Everything was pitch black. All I could do was be present in my body in the moment. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, the orgasm was absolutely incredible. This is a journey. I don't think you go from screaming fake orgasms to true embodiment overnight. I think it's about every time you're intimate with yourself, with your partner, making small changes to be more embodied, to be more present. But I love that about in the dark. Maybe take out all the senses totally so you can't see a thing. So there is no performance because it is pitch black. All you can do is feel each other, be with each other. Maybe that is a great place for people to start. So I absolutely love that. But again, what I'm feeling strongly from this discussion is it takes two people in a partnership to build this deeply present, embodied, no performance, no judgment, no ego space, you know, two people that are aware of the impact that porn has had on them, two people that are aware how their previous partners have shaped them. Something else that I think is very, very helpful is the experience of being seen. And when you play in this kind of space, Having your partner literally stand in front of you in their nakedness and observe them, quite literally spend 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is, doesn't matter the duration, whatever you've agreed on with your partner, and look at them, explore them. And when you do so, you do it in being the observer the most loving way possible that it's, it almost becomes a meditative practice that you're observing every single nuance that makes them so unique. And the person that's receiving that, and once you start introducing that practice, you have no idea how much armor literally starts breaking down. And I want to say to people listening, 
if the thought of that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. Because even though I like to think I'm confident generally in life, I still don't love looking at my body in the mirror. And the reason for that is that my body has looked a million times better over the last 10 years when it was coming from an unhealthy place. So it was better in terms of less body fat, more toned, but it wasn't from a healthy, embodied, balanced place. But I'm not going to lie and say, oh, I look in the mirror. I love my body. My partner loves my body. Because yes, my partner adores me, every part of me. But sometimes when I look in the mirror, I don't love and worship myself. But I am working on it. And through working with people like Massimo and through having a partner who does love, worship and adore me, I have started to re-nurture that relationship with myself, which I think we all have experienced a great deal of damage to along the way. That's really where I think knowing where your growth edge is versus your trauma edge. You can see that even in respect of your body image, that is a growth edge. And you're constantly edging into that because that anxiety is now translated in a way of going, actually, there's something that I need to grow through here. Whereas the minute we start leaning into where it starts feeling traumatic, that's where the word no needs to come in. In my world, maybe means no. And I think it's a principle that everybody should adopt, maybe. When we step into the space of going maybe, it sounds like a positive thing, like we're actually going for something and going to make a positive decision for something. But in my world, maybe means no. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. Maybe means no. The more certain you are in these, in these aspects, in discussion with yourself, with your partner, with anybody else, it gives you the power to be able to control a situation and not put yourself into sticky situations. Oh, this is so, so, so important. I really, really want to second that, that if it's a maybe we should be treating it as a no. And I want to ask you on that, how would you, as a psychotherapist, as a therapist, as a sexologist, if you don't want to do something, if you don't want to make a sex tape, if you don't want to send a nude, what words could or should you use to communicate that to someone? Very simply, thank the other person for being so bold to express their desire. So in other words, thank you for expressing your desire for what you're wanting of me. But for me, that doesn't sit very well with me. And in the current moment, it's a no. There doesn't have to be explanation. There doesn't have to be justification. And there doesn't have to be defensiveness about it. But it's acknowledging the other person's desire. And your desire is no. It doesn't match up. I think that's so important as well, because the amount of times that I've made excuses, you know, oh, I'm out right now, or oh, you know, I can't, or whatever it is, like making excuses as to why you don't want to do something, or actually even playing it off as like, oh, you know, if you're a good boy, or if you wait a bit longer, or like putting a sexual like twinge on the response but I also think that you don't need to put that flirty spin on it. We don't have to be ashamed of stating our reasonable boundaries. And I think that's something that I've spent many, many years trying to unpick. So absolutely love that around just state your boundary, thank them for their interest. And then we just say that doesn't work for me. That doesn't sit well for me. I don't feel safe enough in this situation. So not right now. And the most important thing to remember is that the person on the other end receiving that, if they respect you, they'll accept it. If they don't, you pretty much know exactly where you stand. You're right. 
so we need to do so many episodes together because just the learnings around the men and the women that don't respect you and will not respect your pacing and your boundaries and how to navigate that I think is something that we have to get into in future and I I know that we will but I think what I've taken from this episode is that there is a systemic issue in today's society with performance and that issue with performance actually comes from a disconnect to ourselves there are so many different elements to this from faking orgasms to doing things that you don't want to do and it actually comes from a conditioning and a belief that we have to be a certain way to be validated and to be loved. And that by being that certain way, not only will we be validated and loved, but we will also validate the ego of our partner. So we get stuck in a cycle of validation for us and the other that is disconnected from our true and ultimate pleasure. And that we need to pull those layers back slowly, slowly to our truth, to our breath, to our body, to our presence, to just be and to just explore each other with no pressure on the outcome. No orgasm, no screaming. It doesn't matter if you don't get there. It doesn't matter if you want to come silently. It doesn't matter if you do not come at all. So that is my takeaway from, I think, what's been an incredibly beautiful discussion. So thank you for all of your knowledge and wisdom that you have shared. And Thank you for holding this space with me. And I cannot wait that in the new year, we're going to be launching some courses together. There's going to be some incredible stuff that we can take people deeper on this journey with you. So to everyone listening, thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for giving yourself this time. If you took value from this episode, please do share it on social media and drop us a review on Apple or Spotify and also hit subscribe. So you'll be the first to know when we drop a new episode every Monday. Louise, thank you so much for always holding the most incredible space and bringing such such essence to the table. Honestly, believe that everybody would benefit just listening to you. So thank oh, you for having me on again. My pleasure. I'll see you next episode. Thank you so much. Hi, friends. Did you love the episode? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I always enjoy recording them. If you took value from this episode, I would really appreciate you subscribing to the podcast, leaving a review on Apple or Spotify, as well as tagging us on social media at The Open House Podcast. Supporting us in this way helps the podcast to move up the charts, as well as most importantly, reaching more people who are in need but can't access traditional therapy. Thank you a million times over for always supporting this podcast and going on this journey with me. And other than that, this is your final reminder that you can find me here on the Open House podcast every Monday. Until then, remember, there is nothing sexier than self-awareness and together we are going to make mental health great again.